everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, the editor-in-chief and film critic at the Cinematropolis, Caleb Masters, and this month we'll continue July's Cinematropolis theme of time travel, celebrating the Indiegogo for Planet Thunder Productions' new film, Shifter. In today's episode, we'll start with the first entry of our audio diary documenting the fundraising and casting process for Shifter. After you have a script and you've got all that stuff going and you kind of know what what film or project you're wanting to do, then the next big question is, okay, how do we fund it? Later, Alexandra Bohannon will delve into film scores from movies that feature time travel. It's looking at your limitations as another form of strength and having you get more creative because, I mean, I can't imagine Donnie Darko having different music. In closing out the show, Leron Chapman and I will do a review of Boots Riley's directorial debut, Sorry to Bother You. Sorry to Bother You is probably the most unique of the bunch in that it has a very surrealistic kind of cerebral take on some pretty dark themes. It's all coming at you next. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Cinematic Schematic. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, the editor-in-chief of The Cinematropolis. We are kicking off this segment. This will be the first segment of our shifter making of Cinematic Schematic segment. Ooh. Ah. So for those of you who don't know, Shifter is a time travel body horror that is being made by our parent company, Planet Thunder Productions. Ooh. <laughs> ah. uh, there are no ghosts, I assure you. There, there are no ghosts in, in this movie. They are working on a film called Shifter. We wanted to take our listeners, give you a chance to go behind the scenes to get an idea of, like, how does a sausage get made? How do you actually make a film? And so we are documenting it here on the Cinematic Schematic with a monthly segment about... The, the filmmaking process. So every month we're going to be, until the film is released, we're going to be talking with Jacob and Zachary Burns about how is it made? What is the thing that the thing they're working on right now, or they've just finished working on recently. That's a big piece of production and just kind of go from there. So uh, of course, we've got to welcome both of you gentlemen, mystery ghosts uh, to my left, uh, Mr. Jacob Burns, the writer director of shifter. Welcome back to the cinematic schematic. Hey, and further to my left <laughs> is, <laughs> Zachary Burns, producer on Shifter Film. Oh, hey, guys. What's up? Well, a lot. Well, yeah, a lot. <laughs> you guys have been pretty busy lately, yes? We have yeah. been. It's been a uh, crazy, well, leading up to this moment, crazy probably year or so since we really first started kicking the movie into gear. Um, but yeah, this week, this week especially, in the last couple of weeks, have been... Uh, Pretty, pretty hectic. Pretty intense. All right. I think in this podcast diary, so to yeah. speak, I think there's going to be two areas we're going to be hitting on. Fundraising and casting. Mm-hmm. Jacob, before we get started, could you tell me a little bit about Shifter, the, the film? Yeah. So Shifter is a time travel horror movie about a young woman who experiences uh, these very painful and gruesome side effects from an experiment with time travel gone wrong uh, that causes her to shift through time at random. Ooh, um, so it's ah. a very, uh, it's something I'm very, a premise I'm very, very excited about. Um, it's got uh, the cool, interesting, gory visual effects, but kind of wrapping around a uh, kind of a, a character drama about this this young woman. So, a film that's totally my jam, if you will. <laughs> um, it's, it's, all, it's all the things I like to, to play with. 
Okay. All right. And this is going to be same wheelhouse as Electric Nostalgia, but kind of different area of the wheelhouse, so to speak. So Electric Nostalgia, more of a thriller about robots, a little psychological thriller dealing with robots. It was black and white. Shifter, time travel, body horror. So it's like, if you like one, you probably like both. But also, they're two. They are two different things. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think the the, the two films, kind of scratching the surface, will look kind of similar, sound similar, and that they're both kind of character dramas with kind of a horror or sci-fi wrapping around them. Shifter is going to feel a lot different than Electric Nostalgia for a multitude of reasons. One, it'll be in color, <laughs> um, uh, which is one of the what? first questions I get asked uh, every time. Uh, and then for many other reasons, it has a very different setting, very different set of characters, um, and very different kind of story structure, especially with the time travel stuff, um, which is a whole, whole other thing to deal with. So yeah, really, really excited. It's kind of, uh, kind of the next step and kind of, uh, pushing forward and kind of doing something bigger and better than what we did with nostalgia. Zachary, anything else you'd like to add? Did we mention it's in color? <laughs> <laughs> And you've launched an Indiegogo at shifterfilm.com. Correct. So where are you guys at in the, that fundraising process? First thing, after you have a script and you've got all that stuff going and you kind of know what, what film you're, or project you're wanting to do, then the next big question is, okay, how do we, how do we fund it? How do <laughs> we, we pay actually... for everything? <laughs> um, so there's a few ways you can go. Um, you can go the investor route and stuff like that, which is a whole other ordeal to deal with um or you could do the crowdfunding thing which is what we did on electric nostalgia do you go to the people for your money or do you go to the rich guys (laughs) um so we chose the people we chose the people people. um of course everyone including the wealthy (laughs) yeah hopefully some of them are rich wealthy wealthy investors are the people as well yeah don't Uh, exclude anybody (laughs) Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the question. Like, um, and, and so we chose to kind of one of our big things with planet thunder is, is, um, our goals is to kind of create a a culture and a, and a base, a fan base, if you will, or just kind of a community of people who kind of come along with us for the ride for all our projects and stuff like that. And so, uh, crowdfunding is a great way to do that because it's a great way to, one, you can get funding for the movie, but also it's a great opportunity to really spread the word and get the hype going for the movie. That's why we chose uh, uh, that route for this film. Heck yeah. Um, and so the actual question was, where, what point are we at? Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, no, 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 that's good. No, that's good. No, yeah, no, 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 that's good. I think that's good to know. That. I think a lot of people out there need to know that, though. Hey, one, there's not just one way to fund your film. And there's uh, there's not just one there's not one way, but there's also no easy way. Correct. Uh, anytime you're asking people yeah. to give give them your money, that's a, that's a very hard thing to do. Absolutely. Um, so, I think that's very important people to know kind of your strategy because they're you know it's a curious thing. A lot of people just think again, movies just come out of nowhere; they yeah. cost money. Yeah. So my next question on that front though uh, is, how do you go about determining what your budget is? For this one, we kind of started with the budget and went from there. For Nostalgia, we ended up raising around 15000 through Indiegogo. And then we had some other uh, money from other places that we were able to kind of use to help kind of fill the, the gaps there. So we kind of looked at Nostalgia, looked where we did well and where we used that money well and where we could maybe use it more effectively this time and uh, kind of ended up deciding on 30,000 for the, the, the crowdfunding campaign. So kind of 
taking what we had done last time and kind of um, hoping that um, through the goodwill and, and whatever we've built up resources and stuff like that, that we've built up over the couple of years since nostalgia uh, would kind of add up. So we just kind of, we essentially just kind of doubled that to 30,000. Um, and so that's kind of where we landed for our current crowdfunding campaign. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it's all a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> I hope, you t- I hope you're paying attention to business class in college. Oh, I wish I took any. Uh, yeah, we're kind of doing this. Uh, the strategy we're kind of doing is uh, making it up as we go along. It's kind of the. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Uh, so after we decide to do that, then so we decided that we were going to do this probably in January. Yeah, I think is when we kind of finally were like, okay, this is what we're doing. So from there, then we broke down. Okay. What are the steps we need to take before we actually launch this thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, once we kind of knew what we needed to get accomplished first, then we decide, okay, that'll probably take this amount of time. This is then th- that means this is probably the date that we'll launch the campaign. These are the dates that the campaign will go through and stuff like that. And so it's just kind of breaking each each step down, and then from there, kind of uh, adding on to that from there. So. How did you guys land on crowdsourcing in July? Was there was that part of your strategy? Was that just whenever it seemed best for your schedule? Like, how did you guys decide this was the time to do it? Well, uh, how we kind of landed on that was we kind of just looked ahead throughout the year and we're like, oh, yeah, Dead Center, like the biggest, coolest thing film-related that happens in Oklahoma every year. That's We should do something about that. And so we kind of based everything around when Dead Center happens, which is in uh, mid-June. Looking at that, we decided we wanted to, how we wanted to best utilize Dead Center was that's where we'd, we would start getting the name out for Shifter for this movie and also use it as a giant casting call net to local actors and actors from out of town and, and all of this. Um, again, just to help use it as a really big push to get the name of Shifter out there in front of people. Then we decided after we did that at Dead Center, use that as a launching pad for the name of Shifter. Then a few weeks after that, we we uh, thought July would be the great time to launch the Indiegogo campaign um, because then it's got the name out there. We're in the middle of casting, which also is a great way to get the name out there um, and get us in front of a lot of people. So that's just kind of where we landed. We're right in the middle of the Indiegogo right now. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Where I think it launched eight, nine days ago, ten days ago, uh, ten, ten days ago, I think. As of this recording, as so of this moment, as, yeah, of, this as, moment. as of this moment, so we're we're recording yeah, on yeah. uh, July eighteenth. Uh, if you're listening, you're hearing yeah. it uh, at least a week after that, after t- today. But know that you guys are about thirty percent into your goal as of the eighteenth. Yeah. Which is really exciting. Congratulations oh, on that. Thank bit. you. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been amazing. Um, yeah. But that still means you got 70% to go before the end of the <laughs> Thank you. Indiegogo. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know there was going to be math involved. <laughs> so this Indiegogo, which is can be found at shifterfilm.com. Please Check contribute. Is, please. <laughs> uh, consider contributing at, at shifterfilm.com. Please. <laughs> you guys are running this until what date? Uh, August 18th. Yeah. I August believe it's the last should be the last day. Last day. So a month from today as of this recording. Yeah. 
All right. So I'm going to ask the hard questions now. Okay. We'll, we'll start with the less happy one. Yeah. As a filmmaker, what happens if you don't make your goal? There's a lot of mixed emotions. So we make a movie. We make a movie is what happens either way. If we don't reach our goal, really, either way, we're, we're going to make a movie and we're going to make it for whatever we can. It might take uh, us some rethinking uh, on the budget and stuff like that. But um, we've we've grown up and learned the biz and learned what we're doing through super low budget filmmaking. So it won't be anything new for us. And we've built up a lot of great resources and stuff like that mm-hmm. that we can take advantage of. So either way, there's going to be a movie with our current campaign um it's flexible funding so whatever is there at the end of the campaign we do still get um we don't we don't lose all of that um so we should be able to um even you know right now if if we got no more money at all which please 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 i hope that's not (laughs) what happens (laughs) but but uh we could you know we we've made projects at any level and do our best to kind of utilize that and and use that that put as much of that money on screen as possible. So um, ultimately that's what we're going to do no matter what, whether we mm-hmm. don't make it or, or we make way more than we expected. Okay. So happier question. Yeah. What happens if you make exceed your goal? Um, you guys take a vacation after where you is. Lots of high fives, probably personally going to people's houses and giving them high fives and right. uh, stuff like that. Uh, that would be amazing. Um, that would just kind of open up uh, a lot of opportunities for the film, mm-hmm. um, especially uh, for post-production and stuff like that, where a lot of funds and stuff like that, it's hard to save money for post-production <laughs> when you're in production. Very, very hard. Uh, uh, and so that could kind of help us start, uh, kind of give us a, a pool to draw from from that. And then also... Um, just more money means we can hire more people to be on set, which would really be a huge asset for uh, me, Zachary and Vinny who on nostalgia um, uh, just to give an example. So on electric nostalgia, Vinny was the first AD and the key set PA and the craft service guy. Um, And so he not only was trying to keep everybody on schedule and contact actors and let them know when they're supposed to be there and, and, and also producing, um, he also was the guy who had to go to the grocery store and buy snacks for all the crew, Ooh. um, and then get there early to set it up. And so, yeah, Thank uh, you, Vinny. yeah, thanks Vinny. It was very taxing on, on all three of us. Cause so many jobs that each of us had to take on, uh, really, especially Zachary and Vinny, they did a great job of letting me mostly direct. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, so yeah, that would be the big thing. If we make more money, that could just mean more hands on set to help this thing get made. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. So that's the hard question. Hard ones behind you. So basically, <laughs> uh, thirty. So, so thir- the thirty thousand dollars is really the minimum of. I mean, you can make a movie for less, but to meet the vision that you have now, the minimum you need is thirty thousand dollars. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So if we had thirty thousand, we could probably do most of the things that we want to do. Um, yeah. At at a certain level of quality, and then the um, extra and the extra and anything you get over thirty grand is gravy, but not like fun money. It's like, oh no, we can actually focus more on our key main jobs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it could help kind of disbursement of uh, work and and stuff like that um, responsibilities, um, and then just kind of open a lot of doors. And you know, it could help with post-production stuff as far as like sound design and uh vfx Visual and effects, stuff like yeah. that like well we'll need money for all that stuff later too so um 
yeah, the more the more funds we raise, the 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 better um, opportunity for the the film's quality to rise. Okay, so if you're listening out there and any of this sounds enticing, do it all. Um, you can contribute to this Indiegogo. It is still going to be live when you're listening to this episode, as long as you're listening to it before August 18th. 18th. So if you're listening before August 18th, shifterfilm.com. Check it out. Contribute it. These guys need 30 grand. I know there's 30 grand out there. If you're listening, head on over, throw money at it, please. And there's lots of cool perks. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of cool perks. perks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not just like give us money and not get anything in return. They get like all sorts of cool swag. Yeah. So on top of a cool movie at the end of all this, um, Zachary, you can talk about some of the perks. And stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We got um, we got cool T-shirts you could get. We Woo. got travel mugs. Woo. Uh, we got custom enamel pins Woo. that you can wear. Uh, pin it on anything like your shirt. Anything. Anything. Your uh, shifter shirt. Your shifter shirt. Your other kind of shirt i don't know um what else do we got we got custom uh concept artwork that you can get as prints from super cool local artist jerry bennett Woo. um and he'll autograph it he will autograph it for you because he's that cool um what else do we got if you give enough you can come hang out with us on set during production one day um if you've if you give even more than that you can have a role, a small role in the movie as a featured extra um, and have your face on the big screen. Ooh. Yeah. So, yeah, there's all kinds of cool perks um, if you are if you are enticed to contribute. So they make it worth your while. Shifterfilm.com. Contribute today. Okay, so we've talked about the fundraising piece. So this is where we're at. Fundraising is a big one. But also, you are at the tail end of casting. So basically... You guys have already done your first wave of casting. You've done your open call, but you've narrowed it down to people you're going to call back. Talk with me a little bit about the process of casting uh, specifically for this film. Totally. So uh, like Zachary was saying earlier, we released the casting call. That was kind of how we, that's basically how we announced that the movie officially was happening was through the casting call. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it was one thing we learned from nostalgia was how quickly word can spread about a project through a casting call. Um, and so we knew whenever we were going to announce shifter, that that was going to be kind of our initial announcement of the film. Um, cause that's just what really surprised us on nostalgia. So, uh, and luckily the same thing happened again. Like we put that out there and then just very, very quickly, uh, we were getting a ton of emails and messages and the word spread beyond, yeah. Just Oklahoma City. It was spreading to Norman and uh, Tulsa and Austin and Dallas and stuff like that, and yeah, all over, sure. all over the country, really. Um, and so um, that was very exciting. So what we did was we put out a call. Uh, we had a uh, kind of a, a scheduling website that people could go to and set up uh, if they were able to audition in Oklahoma City, they could do that. Or Austin, we also had. Vinny ran auditions in Austin for us, a similar process. Um, and then, yeah, we saw roughly around 30 people a day for four days. Yeah. Here, uh, in, Oklahoma here in Oklahoma city. And then there was another 20 or so in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then I don't even know how many video auditions we got. A lot. Um, so we ultimately saw around 200 people, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a lot of people and we're still, we're still kind of going through all that. Um, 
but that was very exciting. Um, it's a it's a good problem to have. Yeah, just so many actors. Yeah, to to try to sort through and figure out who's just right for all these parts. So, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Um, well, it's it's gotta be tough when you like more than one person for the same role, and you totally. only have a limited number of roles, right? Oh yeah, that's that's the worst. It's 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 a very agonizing process because you know, like they, we saw we did the auditions ourselves. Um, we didn't have a casting director, um, and uh, so we were there for every single audition, and um, it was great because we met a ton of new people. Yeah, a bunch of really uh, cool people. And and so that's always fun. But then the bummer is. Oh man, we met all these cool people and we want to put all these cool people in our movie or help them out or, uh, or just, you know, frankly, I just want to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there's just, there's only, there's what, seven roles that we were auditioning for. Yeah. Um, so and 200 people. Yeah. Little that down to seven. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's a tough process and yeah, inevitably there's going to be, uh, more than one person who could work in a role and kind of what we're facing now with, uh, the lead role is uh, uh, we have a, a few options and really they're all great, but they all had kind of a different take on the role and mm-hmm. kind of bring something different. And so that's going to be the tough part is which which take is the right take for the movie. Mm. It's not necessarily about talent anymore. It's about kind of their different approaches and their take and stuff like that. So um, that'll that's our next big hurdle is 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 that once we go through callbacks kind of determining whose take best fits your vision yeah 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 that's tough so i i'm I'm curious uh did you guys do video auditions for electric nostalgia we did some Some, um yeah we um there's probably around like 10 or so video auditions i think for electric nostalgia which is way way less than what we had for this one <laughs> yeah. uh, but and we did we cast a, a couple people from video auditions Heck yeah so yeah do you think there are any benefits or disadvantages to people who audition in person over video auditions um i think there's you know there's there's pros and cons to each um yeah video auditions are uh, nice because they're they're easy the actor can do it in the comfort of their home without all the nervousness of having a casting director or the actual directors they're staring at you um and then they can just send it in and then they can move on with their lives um and just do it in their free time um and then you know same thing like i can casually get them i can be in my you know, pajamas or whatever and, <laughs> and casually watch them, you Watching know, late at night, yeah. you know, you know, whatever. Uh, but not saying that that's happened on this movie. No, no, of course not. It's um, definitely <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I personally much prefer in-person auditions, uh, for a few reasons. Um, most, uh, specifically is just just that opportunity to really get to know the person you're not really you know a video audition they're going to send they might send one or two takes of the scene and then that's that's it you really don't get an understand that person's personality as a person um, and really one of the most important things on a set is like how you work with people and how you interact with them and uh, especially actors like that's super important that relationship between the de- director and the actor is super super crucial to the movie mm-hmm. um, and so it's really hard to get that from a video audition because you just don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, they're just putting their their best takes and sending those to you, um, which can make them look great. And that's a great way, a great starting point. But ultimately, I need to know, 
you know, how you are to work with and you, you know, and are our personalities going to blend well and make the movie better working together? Like that was the great thing about electric nostalgia was the cast was supremely talented. Uh, but they also were just really, really fun to be around and a really great group of people. And, but they were, they're incredibly passionate. They took kind of ownership over the movie as well. Um, and really it was a passion project for everybody. And so that passion, you know, probably my passion rubbed off on them and their passion rubbed back on me. And so it kind of helped push each other to make the movie better. There was a lot of times on set where I was like, Oh man, like this cast is so good. They're doing such great performances. (laughs) Crap. The movie has to be really good now. (laughs) Like like I have to make a movie that lives up to their performances. Uh, And so that's perfect. Like that's how it should be. And, and, and hopefully it was the same thing for them that they were, hopefully they thought they were in a good movie uh and and wanted to do their best uh to make that movie even better so um yeah that's kind of what auditions are all about so that's why i kind of prefer in person versus video very good i mean i think it's just really good for listeners out there to understand again going same way with the the crowd system there are multiple methods in which to do this thing there's not one way it's gonna cat it's just about what best suits your needs and your goals and it's also good to know what filmmakers like. Some filmmakers probably prefer video. Uh, others totally. prefer, like you say, catching them in person so you can kind of catch them on their feet, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's part of it. Yeah, like you said, there's yeah. different ways. Some directors prefer video. Some prefer having a casting director kind of weed out stuff and kind of give them what they think, and then they kind of just choose from there. But uh, for me, especially at this budget level, like how I... It, it, it's really beneficial for me to just get in there and really get to know these people. Are you guys ready to be done with casting? <laughs> uh, that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll interpret it for you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, like, it's, it's a fun process because it's kind of the first step or, yeah. like... The fir- our first week in uh, ho- holding auditions here in Oklahoma City, it it was incredibly exciting. Um, even though we knew, you know, we were going to see so many people, and it was going to be, you know, just physically kind of exhausting. Yeah. Um, but we were also really excited because it's kind of the first real step of being like, okay, yeah, this movie is really happening. Um, we're actually starting to turn the wheels to make this thing actually come to life, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, it's also just I mean, with a, again with a lot of elements of of filmmaking in general, you're, it's really exciting at first, but then you, once you spend so much time working in the gears and everything, you're like, okay, I'm ready to move down the line to some other part of the machine. <laughs> um, um, but I mean, at the same time, it's still really exciting. Like, I, yeah. I, we're in the middle of trying to figure out callbacks and get all that done, and I'm I'm still very excited about that process yeah absolutely and like as as a writer it's really exciting to start seeing actors reading those words and you kind of it kind of gives you a new perspective on 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 the scenes and stuff like that and actually honestly throughout the auditions there's a few scenes i'm like oh i need to rewrite that um (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) it sounds different when someone says it exactly yeah Yeah. like in the way the interpretations they bring and and sometimes they yeah they just bring something new to it or the or or the way they interpret it is different than what you had thought and so it kind of makes you rethink that need to go back so um but yeah like you said like seeing them kind of 
read those words for the first time, like the, the first few people, especially, it was just, it was really exciting. Cause yeah, it's the first time that for, for a brief second, those characters are alive for the first time. That's exciting. Kind yeah. of a, a tease of the things to come. Yeah. Speaking of a tease of things of the things to come, what is the next step once you finish with casting? Once you wrap up the crowdsourcing, where do you guys go next? So that's a great question. So next big thing will probably be, um, we're kind of already in some early phases of it, but kind of figuring out who the crew is going to be, uh, especially kind of the top tier levels. Um, we're hoping to bring on, um, some more kind of producer production side types this time than we had last time. Mm -hmm. And then also hoping to have a little bit bigger crew, uh, on set than nostalgia. So, um, we've got a lot of ideas of who will probably, it'll probably be a lot of the same people that we've used over and over again. Uh, so that'll be kind of the next big step. And then once we get the, once we're crewed up, um, I'll probably throughout the next few weeks and especially after the, the crowdfunding, probably take another crack at the script, do another rewrite. Um, and then, um, then yeah. And then we'll, we'll really start jumping into like location scouting and, uh, uh, production design and uh, art design and um, uh, really start kind of putting the movie together. Exciting times. Yeah. Very exciting yeah. times. If you're out there listening, you can make sure to stay in touch and up to date on all of Shifter's latest developments uh, by subscribing to the Cinematic Schematic Podcast. Uh, this is going to be something that's going to roll. I think about once a month is what we're aiming for. Sweet. Just to yeah. see... Hey, where's that? What's the latest thing that's happened? Subscribers can look forward to that, and you can also find uh, all these conversations on thecinematropolis.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash thecinematropolis and on Twitter at thecinematrop. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so much for talking with me today about Absolutely. Shifter's latest Heck updates. Yeah. I'm very excited to be on this journey with you, alongside you, watching from afar, you know, like more like witnessing as this develops. I think it's really exciting. Uh, and I think it's a, a great opportunity for listeners out there who maybe want to get into film to understand exactly, hey, this is a very big, long process. What does that actually look like? Yeah. It's a good opportunity yeah, for that. For sure. Yeah. All right, listeners, well, out there, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, up next, we'll be talking with Alexandra Wohanan about, related to Shifter, time travel film scores on the latest edition of Soundtrack. So make sure to stay tuned.
Hello, and welcome to Soundtrack, the curated soundtrack and score analysis segment on the Cinematic Schematic, presented by thecinematropolis.com. We're back after a little break last month because we did so much Dead Center coverage, we probably lost our collective minds, especially Caleb. So much Dead Center <laughs> coverage, guys. We Dead Centered so hard. We dead it ourselves. S- we centered. <laughs> Sorry, not on it. Don't have enough coffee <laughs> no. for whatever. If that was a joke, I can't even uh, tell. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, I think a good st- next step would be to head on over to thecinematropolis.com and check out all of our Dead Center coverage i think we had like five or six podcasts that came out and around 12 written articles insane Uh, so we 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 had your back cover guys so soundtrack didn't have a a post last month but that's okay because we're all back now as a reminder i'm alexandra bohannon full-on film score geek host of soundtrack i'm not alone you can already hear that that's spoilers i mean okay our topic this month has some spoilers because sometimes our our theme is the twist but um before we get into that what is your name because we're not alone uh hi my name is caleb masters (laughs) i'm the editor-in-chief here at the cinematropolis.com and your voice of the cinematic schematic wow yeah so uh this month we're tackling the category of time travel movies this is an honor of planet thunder productions newest feature film in pre-production stages fundraising stages and caleb as the editor of the cinematropolis how about you read the synopsis for the newest planet thunder productions film shifter In Shifter, a young woman experiences painful side effects from an experiment with time travel gone wrong. That's a good, that's actually, that's on my, our good trash uh, media days. Like that'd be a long line synopsis that we'd probably thumbs up. It's like, it it gets it, it gets it. Simple to the point, doesn't spoil anything. One sentence, got discovered. Okay, well, so if that kind of one sentence log line tickles your fancy, along with all the stuff you're going to be hearing um, on the next however many minutes that this episode of Soundtrack goes, why don't you chip into their Indiegogo? It'll be in the show notes all over the Cinematropolis and the Cinematic Schematic pages on uh, Planet Thunder Productions' website. Shifterfilm.com. Shifterfilm.com. I knew there was going to be an easy URL, but I just didn't know You want to contribute to the Indiegogo, or you like time travel, which is the theme of the episode today, make sure to head on over to Shifterfilm.com and contribute today. Exactly. I'm not being held at gunpoint by Jacob or Zachary Burns to say that, I promise. (laughs) Yeah, it's just Vinny. (laughs) Just kidding. Shifterfilm.com, please. Head there now. I know. I need to time travel back to stop this awful thing from happening. Absolutely. So this month, we're tackling time travel films. Just to get this out of the way, if you're itching, itching to hear some of this... You're sorely mistaken. <laughs> no, what? I, I thought we were going to go take a second trip in the DeLorean, Alex. Yeah, so I I know it just so happens that our our, our overlords at uh the uh cinematropolis.com chose the theme of time travel films right after we did an episode on Spielberg where we talked at length about Back to the Future, yes, which correct. is like the the time travel movie that anyone ever thinks of. It's right? true. It's true. So, but if you want to hear deep dives, hot takes on Back to the Future, Alan Silvestri's amazing score, check out the Spielberg episode. Yes, we talk about it at length. We know Spielberg didn't direct Back to the Future, but yeah, head on over there. Episode five. It's totally worth your time to get your fill of Back to the Future. But anyway, opening the show this week, Caleb, 
do you have any clue? It's kind of weird, huh? Okay, yeah. So this was a this is a, t- a tough one for me because the one of the music cues sounds really familiar. The yes. Yeah. 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 I'm like, ah, it's ringing a bell, but I none of the rest of it's sticking with me. So so enlighten me. Yeah. So that was 1968 classic science fiction masterpiece, Planet of the Apes. Oh, directed. Of the Apes. Yes. yes. Franklin J. Schnaefer scored none other than Jerry Goldsmith. God bless that man. Do you have any familiarity with uh, Goldsmith, Caleb? Probably. Yeah, the, you do. The name is uh, the name's not familiar, but uh, I, I imagine if he scored Planet of the Apes, he's probably all over the place. Yeah. Um. So he is the person who is re- he. So he passed away in two thousand four. Received eighteen total Academy Award nominations, uh, making him one of the most nominated composers in Oscar history. Despite this, only winning one Oscar for. The Omen, 1976. Ooh, The Omen. You yes. don't say. Yes, but, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, you know, he's, he scored some movies. Movies like, just some basics like this. Jerry Goldsmith, Star Trek, the motion picture. And fantastic. And of course, the corresponding TNG theme uh, based upon his score for the motion picture. And then I can't remember. I feel it really bad, but I know he did probably another three, if not four of the other original TOS scores for the original, the original motion picture set. Um, Basically building the, the groundwork for how Star Trek sounds in uh, motion picture form i think he and then jerry goldsmith also did alien as well oh the original alien it's a yes. fantastic yeah score. absolutely so obviously like a granddaddy of star trek yes yeah star, star trek yeah uh and he also he's one of the few people to have two afi top 25 american film scores so Ooh. this guy is like he's this is the business with uh planet of the apes and but what's really interesting about Planet of the Apes because I mean so we heard with this the Star Trek and I'm really I have to say Star Trek really hard because our name here is Soundtrek and it's we got we like, got to punch praise the star Star Trek okay. <laughs> yeah absolutely so uh, our thing with Star Trek I mean you hear, hear those big swooping um, that swooping melody and it comes in really strongly I mean. Whenever you think of like kind of classic classic cinematic scoring, I think of things that sound like Star Trek. Um, whenever I think of scoring, now nineteen 19- like an opera or exactly, something like that. yeah, yeah, absolutely, full full orchestral treatment. Got lots of woodwinds and swirling, uh, hopeful music. I mean, it's very uplifting, very energetic, and that's one thing that's amazing about Star Trek. And I don't want to spend too much on Star Trek because I really want it to have its own due in the future. Uh, and don't worry, there are plenty of time. Tra- there's plenty of time travel in, in Star. Star Trek. Trek, absolutely. One thing that's really empowering about it is that it's a very optimistic view of the future. And I think that one thing Goldsmith's score captures is that optimism, that future forward thinking that's so just bright for the future. It's it's great. Now, 1968, Goldsmith caught some massive attention for his almost controversial score for Planet of the Apes because it's completely avant-garde when scoring planet of the apes goldsmith he used like a bunch of really weird techniques you know how we talked about in the godzilla episode um how the composer was you know using the resin bow to make the sound of uh the sound design for godzilla's roar and like complete like manipulation of how you're quote supposed to do things and how you're supposed to 
you know, score film or manipulate sound. So basically he used like looping drums into like echo chambers and he had horns blown without mouthpieces. Oh, wow. Woodwind players were uh, fingering their keys without like blowing into them. And he would record that as kind of like some more like sound texture. Use steel mixing bowls and other objects to use to make some of those weird percussive noises, like totally just off the rails kind of stuff. But that's why it was like so innovative for the for its time especially and and of course uh planet of the apes became is one of those top 25 afi film scores preserved well, I, I think it fits the, the spirit of the film too that's such an experimental film and at the time was very risky and i don't i want to say it wasn't super well received when it came out yeah so. yeah I, and the thing is is like goldsmith does a really great job as a composer capturing the tone of like Two different worlds that are forward-thinking. I mean, Star Trek has a lot of time travel in it, like we discussed. These two different perspectives on what our future could potentially look like. And so when we get that twist where it's at the end, where Charlton Heston's kneeling on the beach and, you know, seeing the Statue of Liberty. Spoilers. You maniacs! You blow it up! damn you! God damn you all I'm sorry. It's 1968. I, I, I mean, I well, got spoiled for this movie. Way to ruin the movie, I mean, Alex. it's in a, it's in a, a thing called to time ruin travel. the movie. So uh, it, it is where uh, time travel is kind of the twist for this film. But it, it's just really interesting how that negative pessimism and like that hopelessness, it really is perba- pervasive through the score. And it really pushed the envelope in which people then have kind of fallen into um, not necessarily mimicry, but I think that kind of that avant-garde approach to scoring opened a lot of doors for people that might have not approached subject matter in that way before, uh, which I think is really freaking cool. Yeah, no, I, I'd say so. Uh, I, again, I think uh, it just goes to show how ahead of its time Planet of the Apes was all around, including with the film score. I didn't realize that was such an experimental piece, but it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those that it completely fits the tone of what uh, the film is going for, uh, definitely, and really pushes the envelope. I mean, I'm a big fan of that movie because of... It still blows my mind the incredible approach to like prosthetics and the uh special effects uh still hold up to this day so um goldsmith just nailed it i think on that score it's not just goldsmith i mean so goldsmith kind of like is one of these early guys in in examining like how we can use film scoring to kind of explain and support concepts around time travel because there's a much more modern film that has time travel in it and definitely it, it can be just as weird, honestly, but in a totally different way. So we're going to be moving on to our second film, saying goodbye to Planet of the Apes for now. Definitely check it out, of course, if you haven't already. Well, and I, I just want to throw out there, too, uh, I'm, I'm really glad you included Planet of the Apes in this month's selection because I don't often think of it as a time travel film, even though it's definitely a time travel film because we don't find out until the very end of the movie. What's a twist? Yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't until you get into like the third or fourth one when it's very on the nose time travel yeah where like people are getting into you know well, they time, time travel, machines they time, yeah exactly when they time travel back to like san francisco yeah anyway it's a great selection right point of the apes consider that like as an influential time travel film yeah and, and that's one thing that i i feel like and that's why i'm really excited for the burns brothers shifter because 
so often we put things in like a DeLorean in like in terms of how we think of time travel, like we as pop culture connoisseurs and fans and people that like reading, watching stuff. We're like, oh, yeah. So time travels when they get in a thing and then they go to the future, or the past. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's it's not just that, man. Like there's a lot of other stuff that can be related to time travel. And I know you're a huge fan of time travel as like a mechanic. Yeah. Used in like narrative. It's, uh, well, because the uh, the themes that time travel films deal with, the stories you tell with time travel, for me, are the most fun. Right. Yeah. Uh, because it's like, who hasn't ever regretted something in their life? And it's like, well, what if I could just go back and change it? Yeah. And then, especially when you apply that on a more macro level, like with Planet of the Apes, like, what if, oh my God, we committed this huge atrocity? What if I could go back and, and stop it from happening? You know, what if you could go back in time and kill Hitler? Or or certain uh, Cheeto flake flavored presidents and and keep them from from rising to power. Like, what would you do? It is that the right thing to do, mm-hmm. or do you live with the consequences? And I think that opens up a lot of interesting conversations about human nature. Anyway, right. it's, it's it's fascinating, and then not to mention it's just fun, right? Um, and also it 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 lends to my other favorite subgenre, which is like alternate parallel realities, which are usually caused by time travel. Well, buddy. You gotta strap in because that that's all about what this next movie is about. Oh, so strapped in. Get, strapped in. Get, get ready. voices of angels yeah (laughs) and i guess they're time traveling angels so yeah you've got me at a loss it sounds vaguely familiar but i don't recognize this one i I understand because both i think with planet of the apes and this film as well they're not films that it's like yeah john williams indiana jones jesus christ or anything like that like this is kind of you know like you have to be really paying attention it's not like an iconic theme but exactly movie's not iconic exactly okay so that is uh, the first track uh, called Carpathian Ridge from Richard Kelly's 2001 film, Donnie Darko. Oh, shit. Uh, uh, scored by Michael Andrews. Yeah. Oh, dang. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, okay, I, I can I can see it now. Like, in my head, I can see where this is playing at, and it totally plays out. It's so weird, though, because this movie has been so closely associated with the uh, soundtrack, not the score. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, I always think, I mean, iconically, the cover from the Tears and Fears cover, Mad uh, World, Mad World. Yeah, but yeah, we're gonna talk about that in a little bit as well. So, Ooh. yeah, yeah, very excited. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's one thing that I thought it was interesting because it's like, yeah, you can get into the parallel universes and time travel. And it's like, yeah, with uh, this film, we we have both, obviously. Um, so, 
all of the tracks kind of from Donnie Darko's score, because yes, it does have a soundtrack that is independent of, of this film, of course, with uh, a lot of tears, you know, there's actually a tears for fear song that isn't mad world, obviously on, on the, Oh, well, head over heels is, uh, yeah. is, uh, one of my favorite songs of tears yeah. and fears. That's also in here. And sorry, it was Gary Jules covering tears and tears fears. for fears. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it all has a kind of similar feel to it. Um, mostly this is due to a very, 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 very limited budget and scope for Michael Andrews. The whole score itself is only 30 minutes long. So if you didn't notice it, that's fine because most of these tracks are like a minute 50 and there's only like 12 of them and the movie's two hours. So there's like a lot of stuff that isn't scored in this film. The actual score itself also wasn't even purchasable because... You know, 2001, Darnie Darko comes out in a very limited release. It's a sleeper hit, and then it begins this cult following like basically all other movies kind of do with that have a cult following when it gets on the home media. And then 2005, it, the director's cut premiered at Sundance, and then that's kind of where the Darko phenomenon took off more. And then that's whenever you could actually buy the score, but for a long time you couldn't even buy like the soundtrack or the score. All of it kind of sounds the same because Andrews started out the composer. He's a he's a band member for a band called the Grey Boy All-Stars. And basically he, it's lo so low budget that his portion of the money for the soundtrack was extremely thin. So it was basically just Michael Andrews playing everything. And he hired two female singers to kind of do that ethereal choir stuff. So he, he played everything, piano, mellotron, mini marimba, like xylophone, ukulele, guitar, and organ. Well, really talk so about he no played, budget. <laughs> he played everything, mixed it himself, all that kind of stuff. And so that's why, it is kind of so simplistic and so haunting. It's actually, it fits the film perfectly, but it's actually driven by the fact that the guy didn't have a lot of money. So again, uh, getting very creative and innovative with his lack of budget. Exactly. And it's funny because Richard Kelly tells, you know, Andrews is a guitarist. That's like his primary vocation. And so Kelly is like, yeah, don't really want guitar. And so he had to just like teach himself all these instruments so that he could like produce the score because he just didn't have um, the money or resources to bring in a bunch of people like you have with Planet of the Apes. You know, even though we have like this zany avant-garde stuff at you know in Planet of the Apes he still hired bassoonists and crap like that so but he was a one-man shop kind of doing this all by himself which I think is really interesting like that's that's something that I don't think so far we've really d discussed and which is I you know I can always bring it back to shifter but like the whole idea that you can use your limitations it's looking at your limitations is another form of strength and having you get more creative because I mean, I can't imagine Donnie Darko having different -er music. Than right. That. It, it, it's so fitting and perfect. Yeah. You know, it sounds like Donnie Darko. So by having a full orchestra, what it would it really have added? It probably would have had a totally different sound and it wouldn't have sounded like the movie as we know it. Exactly. What are you getting or losing with the presence of more money? Which, I mean, of course, more money always helps to some extent, but it's just like... Well, I think as a... Uh, I mean, obviously, more money always helps, but there is something about having limitations that does force you to be creative in certain areas. And, of course, who doesn't want more budget as a any filmmaker or in any job you do? Who doesn't want more budget? But at the same time, oftentimes when you have those restraints, it gives you a guideline and you say, "How? what is the coolest thing I can do with this 
with this guideline, these like these parameters I have to stay in. Exactly. And uh, one of my favorite things, because there's like this interview about uh, Michael Andrews production process for Donnie Darko. It's the best part of it for me. He's when he says, in a way, your faults become your trademark. The fact that he couldn't play very much outside. I mean, he could play guitar, but he couldn't play these more complex instruments outside of like these, you know, haunting notes. And here he is, you know, kind of manipulating that into a full score and that it works so well. And that's one thing that I thought was very interesting about Donnie Darko, specifically the score in general. Um, It's very subtle. It doesn't draw a lot of attention to itself. It does in some places. I couldn't actually find, I don't know if this is like a, uh, just the release or something, but there's that scene where Donnie is in the the room where he's got uh, Patrick Swayze. He's like presenting his like love everybody whoa stuff, you know, and he's like that '90s tastic music. I wasn't able to find that nor the like actual music that plays under Donnie's raging at that guy, uh, which was really really interesting because that was like kind of more of a deviation from the right. rest of the tone of the, right. the film. And perhaps that's why it wasn't included on the soundtrack. Potentially. Yeah, absolutely. So like Andrew's other, you know, his other uh, role models for scoring, uh, John Barry, Ennio Morricone, he wanted to have that song for his film. And so he chose the song Mad World, originally sung by Tears for Fears, 1982. And so his friend, uh, his childhood friend, Gary Jules, sings as Andrew's plays piano. Very simple, right? And what's so interesting about this, because I've actually never heard the original Tears for Fears song. So we're going to play it right now because it's not it's not bad. Like, obviously, we had to have that song to have Gary's version. But you but let me guess. The first time you heard it was probably in the 2006 Gears of War trailer. And uh, no, no, it was a huge that was like an award winning commercial because it incorporated that theme song. And like for me and I think a lot of people in our generation, that was the first version of that song we heard. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like every even though it wasn't the first version, every version of what we heard after that compared to Gary Jules's version. Tears for Fears version feels more 80s tastic, but it's still great. Yeah, it's great in its own way. So here's the original uh, 1982 version of Mad World Tears for Fears sung by Tears for Fears. Happy birthday, happy birthday. 
version and um i actually <laughs> uh, soundtrack listeners if you haven't heard the original version please make sure to tweet at us at the cinema trop or, or comment on facebook or, or tweet at me or alex because i'm interested to know how many of you have never heard the original version of uh mad world because a lot of people as you said a lot of people think gary jules is the original version yeah. of the song i see i was aware that tears for fears that that the mad world that gary jules did was a cover but i'd actually never heard the original until doing the research for this episode wow yeah i know and and so people in the youtube comments on this video are being really unkind for tears for fears guys because it's like you couldn't have had gary's version without well, the original come on people now. on youtube's comments just aren't nice in general right that um but have some respect guys yeah. be like huh this is not my preferred you can say this is not my preferred version but it's interesting to hear right how gary jules made it better you know yeah, what i mean if you, exactly. if you feel that way yeah because i i do think i think that it's a fairly easy statement to make that gary jules is probably the definitive version of this song yeah just like john Johnny Cash's Hurt is the definitive version of that song. Yep. It is, it, it, it fits better because one thing that, um, cause we're going to listen to, um, Gary Jules's version in a second. Um, one thing that I want you to think about, um, when you listen to this is how, cause I love things that sound super eighties like tears for fears. Um, but I don't feel that the lyrics match the, um, instrumentation underneath what is being and it's a sung. lot more upbeat like poppy uh very yeah. poppy very poppy and not very poppy not like as in popular like as in it pops you yeah know? yeah and, and it's a way more upbeat and so whenever it gets to the part in the lyrics where they're singing about happy birthday i'm like i just don't i don't believe what you're singing right now because of the instrumentation and it feels like we're being almost too lighthearted with this material. Now, granted this may be because I've only heard Gary Jules's tears for fear. Um, Gary Jules is mad love my entire life. But um, so here we are, we're going to listen to his 2001 version. This uh, specific track is the reason why the soundtrack basically kind of got big. I misspoke earlier. It debuted in 2002, specifically Gary Jules' Mad World, which was only on this album, kept on being like a single in Europe, the, uh, Canada, just kept on hitting like the billboard charts, basically. Then that gained a lot of interest and popularity and not just the song particularly but the full soundtrack and then of course the film so that's kind of interesting take on how you can use the composition of the score as and you know the original music like morricone and, and others do as a marketing technique for your particular film i feel like the soundtrack could sell the movie like it's such a good soundtrack you're like if you had never seen the movie but you heard it or you heard the song like huh, i gotta check that out 
Exactly. So here's Gary Jules accompanied by Michael Andrews for 2001's Donnie Darko, Mad World, covered from the Tears for Fears original. version of mad world give me a, give me a sec alex I yeah need, uh, <laughs> basically I right take it. it's uh it, it's like a double whammy because it takes me back to my very sad emo years of high school but it's such a damn it's just such a damn good song right. and it's so emo- still emotional i haven't listened to it in a long time yeah and, and one thing it's because one thing i know donnie darko at least for me and in my circles kind of gets like sometimes it can get a bad rep for being like edgy edgy like super edgy you know yeah so uh i think you and i actually were having a similar related conversation about how film popular films there's a backlash and then it's interesting yes i agree it's cyclical because it came out it was a cult hit everyone thought it was great but then 
a bunch of people came back and said, actually, it's not great. It's yeah. such a dumb emo movie. Right. But really, if you go back, I mean, I haven't watched it, but I imagine if you go back and watch it, it's and kind of removing the baggage from it right, right there. I think it's probably still a really great movie. Yeah. I mean, I watched it in prep for the show and I haven't seen it since a very awful date in 2008. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. Oof. Uh, it's, it's a great story though guy comes over he wants to meet my parents and they're like oh man i'm so glad you're dating my daughter we've never heard of you before and we're, i'm like oh he's boy he's like my boyfriend or whatever and <laughs> so he comes in and they're like how about we all watch a movie together he's like well i just happen to have donnie dark oh my, my car. god with your parents blindsided i had no idea what this movie was about neither did they and he he's like it's my favorite movie whoa with it, your parents bro with Alex's parents, you you pick Donnie Darko. He just happened to have the DVD of Donnie Darko in his car. Okay, so, uh, so we watched it, and he leaves, and they're like, "You can never see that boy again." <laughs> <laughs> and then you broke up with him. Yeah, yeah basically, uh, I didn't ever see him again, and that's the last time I saw Donnie Darko. So now, as an, a real ass adult, seeing it like without all that stress, yeah, I think the film holds up. It, it definitely. There's, I've heard that it fixed in the director's cut that it kind of gets a little more it gives you a little more closure because of it gets more into the the science of yeah. how the shit works in I the world so. yeah and then i i read i read an entire like website uh after i watched it just like what how did this work again? oh the uh what's it called not the theory it was like the parabola yes theory or whatever. The, yeah. and oh, like all of the weird had a name like there's a whole tangent chart, universe like, yeah, yeah tangent I, universe stuff like that yeah super cool it's really cool and i'm so mad that in the standard cut none of this is talked about at all because it's very interesting it, it, it is really interesting it's a bummer but i think uh to be fair i think it was the movie was marketed i'd imagine largely towards teen audiences or young adult sure. audiences and you know again having not watched in a while did you think did you kind of pick up on a lot of angst uh for sure right yeah for sure i mean it's definitely it feels more of like a young adult type of film and, and interestingly it, do, it deals with a lot of because 2001 even though it's set in the 80s there's a lot of you can still pick up on a lot of modern anxieties from you know 99 2000 2001 well it's interesting a movie that's set in the 80s it's interesting because it's right before 9-11 yes Uh, so it's one of those movies you get a glimpse of like what was what were people worrying about before we were worrying about terrorism you know what, right. I mean? what were teenagers worrying about even though it was set in the 80s you know i think it was kind of capturing exactly. the anxieties of the time right and it was very different um but i also think you know uh, again i think this is I, I would love to revisit it myself but i i, I think it's one of those that gets a lot of just like really juvenile backlash. It's like the mm-hmm. cool thing to do is love it until the cool thing is to not like it. Exactly. Uh, and I think a fight club is another example. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, these kind of the, like the dark Knights, another one. And it's like, it's so cool. And then everyone's like, actually it's not very cool. And then you're like, but if you go back and watch it, removing all the kind of like that baggage, I mean, I'm glad to hear that you thought Donnie Darko still holds up pretty well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the idea that, I think it's one of those things where it's like a flavor of like gatekeeping and hipsterism where it's you like something until it becomes popular and then the wrong people start liking it for the wrong reasons. And then you're like, you know, you remember those guys in high school. They're like, oh, I love Fight Club. I just want to punch each other instead of Uh, like a commentary on toxic masculinity and like corporate consumerism and stuff like that. What it's 
actually talking about. actually about. about. Um, you know, so whenever the wrong people like the film take the wrong lessons away, have you ever wondered I got these scars, you know, like uh, that kind yeah. of stuff. Or so, Game of Thrones right now. Exactly. Uh, it's like, what well, people who don't really understand what really, at least for at least for me as an individual, or, or you as a, you know, maybe a more, us as more savvy film watchers, even like in high school, like you, you latch onto these big ideas. You're like, oh, that's so cool. And then you talk about how great it is. And then all these other people get on board with it. And then they like it for the wrong reasons. And you're like, I mean, you guys aren't really getting it. Now I'm getting frustrated. And then baggage yeah, and then the, And then the backlash against those type of fans. And then, you know, tiny culture wars. It's, it's, it's all kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it's okay to like stuff that you like. And it's okay to like stuff even shallowly. Um, it's just, just, you know, everyone... Everyone, take a second. Uh, have like, peace with like what you like. like what yes, you like. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But but I think you're right though. It is that hipster thing. You love it until it's popular, and then you're like, oh, actually, oh, it's yeah. not that good, or you guys just don't get it. Yeah, Absolutely. which is totally a, a thing. Bogus. Moving on to our next film because this next thing uh, that this next film that's going to close out our little episode of soundtrack this week suffers from that exact problem of being so cool that everyone likes it. And then now, no one can stop taking a shit on it. Here we go. It's Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban, well, 2004. What else would it be? And How what, else could we else? end the show with yeah. Alexandra Bohan as the host? Hey, it's, it, it, it's, it's time travel, and it's one of my favorite things ever. And it's also arguably the best film in the Harry Potter franchise. I will die by that claim. I think there's a very good argument to be made. Yeah. And in fact, I probably tend to side with that. But the, yeah. but, but, but I don't you know. You love six really I, I, uh, No, not the movie. The The Book six is my favorite oh, book. Oh, favorite book. And I really I like you six movie. I do like six movie, but it's definitely not, not the best. Copy that. No, no, no. It's it's no, 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 no. <laughs> like, no, no. I like things about six. I defend six, but it's not the best one. I just uh, part two of oh. uh, Deathly Hallow. Actually, the whole package. I'll lump them in one. I, cause I actually like part one too. You could do a. Uh, I would be interested in seeing that supercut. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about Prisoner of Azkaban, directed two thousand four, directed by Alfonso Cuarón, scored by John Williams. Oh my God. Yeah. We were so, I just have to say, we were so blessed to get John Williams to score the first three Harry Potter films. 
I mean, blessed. Yes. And, you know, because this was the, after this one, they took a big break from it. And they they had a bunch of other guys come on. I did think for the last two, Alexander Desplat came in. Yes. And he did an amazing job. I, I was very satisfied uh, with that. But that was because he wrote a lot of beautiful new stuff, but also came back to the original Hedwig's theme and, and incorporated that. Because yes. for a while they ditched it. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, in my mind, this is probably, Harry Potter is probably one of the, if not the like last iconic, like super hummable John Williams themes. Absolutely. Period. It's still, I'm still deeply offended that... Um, the score for uh, Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone, did not win the Oscar the year it was nominated. <sighs> Robbery. It, it is it's a travesty, and I'm fine saying that because, again, it's one of those iconic moments in scoring. Uh, the whole franchise is set up basically by this one film. There's actually huge Wikipedia articles where, because I was like, ah, oh, you know how in the Marvel episode, I was like having to do a lot of research on like finding the, the callbacks to f- previous films. There are Wikipedia articles where they like list out all of the callbacks to in Desplat score. They cite John Williams's specific theme in this film here and here. Mm-hmm. So they outline all of it, which is, Yay, nerds. Uh, Yay. That makes me very happy. Uh, another thing, I'm actually really glad you met, you opened with this particular theme because this is a beautiful choir thing, like something yes. in Harry Potter. Again, a nice thing in Harry Potter we never knew we wanted until they put it in the movie and you're like, whoa, this is so right. Harry Potter. Like, And it- one reason why I, you know, Prisoner of Azkaban at the time, uh, you know, you know, 10 or whatever, however old I was. Okay. I was probably older than that. It was 2004. So I was like 13, 12, 13, 12. Okay. So I didn't appreciate this coming out because I really liked the first two films because they are a slavish adaptation to the source material. And that's all I wanted. I didn't want an adaptation. I just wanted people acting out a stage play of my Harry Potters. And I didn't know I wanted this. And so whenever we get a totally shift in tone, like this is where the series becomes its own entity as its separate franchise from the books. Yes. Which I think is really important. It incorporates a lot of, now we're like vaguely wizarding steampunk technologies. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of steampunk vibes, a lot of gothic horror vibes. No, you're right. This is where Harry Potter took a left turn in the direction it was going in, and for the better, because if they had done all eight movies with Chris Columbus, or even that same idea, it would have gotten stale. Three is also very similar, but it makes a very noticeable break in the last act from the first two, because it actually follows a very similar template. Absolutely. We get so much in three and it's interesting. Cause I, for the longest time I didn't make the full connection that Williams scored three. I thought one of our new composers had did that to like accompany well, the, sh- well, the again, shift. This gets tone. more experimental with the yes. style. Yeah. It, I mean that double trouble song that was used in the trailer extensively. I remember watching the crap out of it, like over and over and over again, that was used in the trailer with the singing toads and all that stuff. That was used a lot in the marketing materials for this film. And it was so different. And, and like in my little book head, I'm like, oh, Harry Potter didn't have a choir. I mean, where did that come from? You know, <laughs> very back in the early days. But yeah. Whenever I'm just like obsessed with it, citing every single thing. You you want to see everything that you pictured in your head on the big screen exactly as you pictured it. Exactly. And so for someone like Alfonso Corona say, hey, it'd be kind of cool to kind of support this gothic vibe we're going for. What if we get a choir? Yeah. What if we did something else? And I think that's one thing that's really great about Williams' scoring is he does a lot of new things of one of which is we get to the, the last act of the film where we get our time travel situation. We get the time Turner with Hermione. If you haven't seen the film, I'm so, it's also very old at this point. And also you've probably read it. You've probably seen it. 
I mean, if you're listening to this, you're a filmer, probably. Oh, Prisoner of Azkaban? Yeah. If you haven't, where you been? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> TLDR, Hermione and Harry are savings. A serious black uh, from a horrible fate uh, worse than death, and they have to use the time ter- turner to rescue him from being executed. So... Uh, again, uh, yeah, uh, that's another really important element there. Uh, this is not... <laughs> you don't realize this is a time travel movie until the end of the... Uh, end of the About the last act, I yeah, should say. Yeah, it, it really is that last little bit there, and then you... And really, it's a fourth act. This movie's really interesting, too, in the, the book the same way, but from a film perspective, it's really... A, it feels like a fourth act, because you have your first three... It's, it's building up to this big confrontation which would normally be like the climax but then you realize after that you're like oh wait this isn't the end this it is, ain't over it is not over and right. it takes a, a weird turn which is great uh, and adds something special to, to yeah, the, the book and the film because in the time up to when we realize it is a time travel film we get like those little nuances of like oh there's someone following Hermione there's um, Harry sees what he thinks is his own father casting his Patronus over the lake to drive their dementors away I remember reading that and my tiny brain was like mind exploded oh yeah I remember Joe was like what the fuck what's going on I was like and it was actually Harry uh, all along so anyway, we're going to listen to uh, one of the tracks. So the ta- track during the time turner time travel sequence, which is called Forward to Time Past. And it is so different than a lot of the other types of things we are expecting, specifically from a John Williams score. Um, so that's why I definitely want to include it because it, it just, it does, it does good work. So here we are, uh, John Williams, Alfonso Cuaron, and uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. One thing that is really interesting about Forward to Time Past is so so far in our show, we've had two really atypical time travel movies, one of which time travel is already past and everything's fucked up. 
two where it's like time travel, but alternate dimensions and like what, what else is going on? Crazy shit. Three is we actually have a normal kind of time travel story in which it's not a time machine. It is a time machine, but they're not hopping in it. They're putting it on exactly and using it as a, as a mechanic in the film to correct some horrible wrong, which is usually what people do in, in kind of time travel scenarios. And what's really interesting because these two first two entries in what we talk about today are kind of atypical time travel films. Their scores are also extremely atypical. Now we have a more traditional time travel narrative and bingo schwingo have ticking clocks which I think is really interesting. No matter the tone of the film, the composer can score, like underscore, the, oh. the, the themes in the film and how the film is kind of operating right? Um, and what it's about. It's not just like the tone and what fits best. It's just like what kind of music summarizes like even the type of movie we're watching. Right, no, and that's the, that's the thing about John Williams' score of Harry Potter with each of the entries, specifically with this one though, the score is such a huge piece of the personality. Like it's such a key identifier. And I know of course, both of us were very young when we first saw it. So it kind of, in our brains that kind of meld together, but like, it, but it feels like so key to the identity of all three of the films he scored, but specifically with this one, with the Gothic feel, with the time travel feel, all of those things kind of come culminate together and really highlight spe- specific sequences and the ideas of the film and the, and the journey the characters are on, which is why whenever we moved to the fourth one, what I would consider, my lesser favorite Harry Potter films. They all feel like they're missing something and it's because they're missing John Williams score. Yes. So that was our um, foray into uh, time travel as interpreted by Harry Potter. We had the ticking clocks and now we are moving on. We are about to say mischief managed to this entire episode of time travel. Um, Before we close out the show, as always, we did time travel theme because of Planet Thunder's Shifter, their feature film. They're raising money right now. Where can they go to, Caleb? So if you want to learn more about uh, Shifter, which again is going to be more or less like a a body horror time travel film. We'll put it that way. Think some David Cronenberg Cronenberg. with time travel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's it's a low-key sci-fi film uh, and it, it, if you enjoyed this soundtrack episode or the interview with we had with uh, Zach and Jacob today head on over to shifterfilm.com give to their Indiegogo they are raising funds through I believe August 18th and they have a goal of $30,000 I think by now they're probably about halfway there so we really need your dollar to make that happen so if you've enjoyed time travel you enjoy this episode or time travel in general head on over to shifterfilm.com and can Consider giving your dollar. There's a lot of really cool rewards that come along with it. They got coffee mugs, they got stickers and patches, and if you give enough money, you can even uh, sit in on a cast reading of a table read. You could be in the fucking movie you if be, you give enough money. If you really <laughs> want to throw your dollars at it, you can be in the movie. Yeah, that's amazing. So we're about to head on out. Of course, you can find me at Twitter, Alex V. Brohannon. You can also find some of my work also on the cinematropolis.com. Hey, oh, actually, cool, Alex. So since our last episode of Soundtrack, you did do a really great piece on oh Solo. yeah it's been that long huh <laughs> i know it goes by it was like the beginning of june it goes by fast but it you, wrote, you uh, wrote a piece on the solo film score i did it does some really cool stuff and the movie is not great but the score is at least interesting so you should definitely check that out i've been cooking on some potential other music 
music related think pieces in my brain. So um, you can always keep a tabs on what I'm writing, watching and thinking about on those various and sundry means. What about you, Mr. Caleb? We can always find me on Twitter also at C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk, tweeting about films, of course, video games, TV shows, all the pop culture things. Yeah, uh, you can uh, find the Cinematropolis proper at the Cinematrop on Twitter and Instagram or find us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash the Cinematropolis. Cool. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be seeing you next time. I'm going to have to time travel back and listen to this whole episode and stop myself from going off on Harry Potter tangents. Absolutely. Definitely doing that. SEO podcast listeners, don't go away because when we come back, I'll be reviewing Boots Riley's directorial debut, Sorry to Bother You, with Lauren Chapman. Stay tuned. everyone and welcome to this month's edition of silver screen soliloquies i'm your host caleb masters the editor-in-chief and film critic for the cinematropolis.com and in today's episode we'll be doing a spoiler free review of boots riley's directorial debut sorry to bother you followed by a more spoiler filled analysis in the second half of the discussion and it's been a minute but i am rejoined by the very one and only Lauren Chapman, writer-director of You People, coming back from the um, film festival. Yes, I just did another film festival um, in McAllister, Oklahoma, called the Glitter Film Festival, and I won Best Oklahoma Film again yes. in Audience Choice Awards. So that's two festivals down, and that's good news for You People. Yes. Well, congratulations on the win, and I, I loved seeing all of your pictures and all that, all the goods come back. <laughs> it was, uh, it seemed like you guys had a, had a good time. Yeah, I think I don't think the people in McAllister will ever forget us. It's such a small town, so I mean, yeah, our names are written on the walls and graffiti somewhere. I promise you. I do want to remind our listeners that if they like the things we're talking about here on the Cinematic Schematic, they can always head on over to thecinematropolis.com or hit us up on Facebook or, or Twitter. But I want to go ahead and get straight to the point and jump right into our review of "Sorry to Bother You." <laughs> I'm just out here surviving. And what I'm doing right now won't even matter. Baby, baby, it will always matter. 
you said you fixed that. Get a room. I got a room, mother. Cash. How much longer I gotta wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you wanna hog it to yourself and your family and me and my family? Yeah. Cash is I'm your fing uncle. I just really need a job. Forty on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davison, cash is green here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. So the synopsis by the studio, by the way, I checked it. It's Anna Perina confirmed that this is their synopsis that is posted on IMDb. In an alternate present-day version of Oakland, telemarketer Cassius Green discovers a magical key to professional success, propelling him to a universe of greed. I, th- I wish all IMDb synopsis was, were this on point because I feel like that tells a lot without spoiling the movie. Now, again, this is a, a film written and directed by Boots Riley, and it stars Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Stephen Yoon, Terry Crews, and Army Hammer, among many others. Let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Did you like it? What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? Well, there seems to be like this surge of um, kind of contemporary urban dramas that are like kind of depicting the black experience um, in a different time period. Cause now that we have voices and um, a lot more um, uh, space to kind of uh, explore some kind of darker themes. Um, it seems like, you know, with get out a couple, you know, last year um, and now, now this film and then also um, uh, blind spotting, which released this weekend here in Oklahoma city. And then also, uh, coming out soon, you know, the Spike Lee film, you know, Black Klansman, you know, like it just seems like we're finding really provocative and inventive ways to talk about really topical and uncomfortable subjects. And I think that Sorry to Bother You is probably the most unique of the bunch um, in that it has a very surrealistic kind of cerebral take on some pretty dark themes. But so I thought it was really, uh, really well done and very thought provoking, but kind of hard to explain after you leave, you know? So yeah, we actually caught this uh, film together and we, we walked out and we said, I think our, our initial reaction was, I think I liked it. Like, you know, just thinking about it, yeah. it because it, 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 there's a lot to take in with this movie, a lot more than I expected, even based on the trailers, because uh, you're right, this is a film that appeared to be a satire, which it is a satire, but it, there's a lot more to it than I expected, and there's a point in the film, without spoiling too many details, that it goes from straight from satire to more surrealist or even science fiction. Yeah, definitely. It takes yeah. A, some left turns we weren't it, expecting. It, it, that's the thing, is it, it, it feels like one type of film. And then as another layer is, you know, there's a certain level of peculiarity about it right from the get go, but in just in terms of style and flair. But then as another layer gets peeled off, like okay, you you kind of just keep taking in the weirdness and then it gets weirder and then it gets weirder and then you're into full on like what, you know, WTF, what's happening. (laughs) They kind of ease you into it. But even as much as they ease you into it, there's still there is a there is a point in the movie and you'll know it when you get there. (laughs) We're not prepared. (laughs) You're you're just you're not ready for it. And there's nothing. There's no way to prepare you without just ruining it for you. So, yeah, Yeah. it's little seeds like the fact that they have uh, white, you know, air quotes, white person voices, uh, which, by the way, I think is hilarious. uh, Voiced by David Cross and Patton Oswalt. (laughs) That is. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the the white voices uh, from uh, Lakeith Stan. 
Anfield. Oh, and Danny Glover, I forgot to mention, is also in this film. And basically, the I, uh, the, the premise, and it's in the trailers, the, the premise is, hey, if you want to make money in this call center business, because basically, Lakeith uh, has to, he has to make money to pay back his uncle because he's about to get kicked out. Uh, or or his uncle's about to lose his house, rather, really. Which I think is also interesting within itself because it's set in an alternate Oakland, but right now, a lot of gentrification going on in Oakland, so this is a problem that a lot of people who've lived there for a long time are dealing with. But I digress. Just a nice, very subtle way to throw that into the the story. Uh, But regardless, anyway, he's trying to make money to help pay for the rent, and uh, Danny Glover essentially lays out. He's like, hey, man, if you want to make money, you gotta like you gotta talk to these people like your white person voice, not not your Will Smith white. I'm talking like I don't really care. I don't really need you to buy my thing, but you know, here's how I could think it can interest you. And uh, I think that itself, I mean, that's that's the base level like satire of like, oh, here's the difference between how yeah. uh, how and how people perceive uh, yeah. even the, the black voice, which is a very um interesting metaphor for just the 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 double consciousness and also the, the kind of the cultural code switching that you have to do in social settings to kind of assimilate into the larger culture i i mean i'm all, obviously i mean I, I could relate to that personally so i thought it was interesting how they were doing it for comedic effect like you literally will be more profitable if you you know take away your natural voice and you know and and obviously you know um, project you know, a different person. So I thought that was very, really, a really fascinating kind of point to bring up. Yeah. And actually I'm glad you mentioned that because I do think the film does a great job at showing identity being a big theme because what, what is your identity? Uh, Is it your, is it your race? Is it your social class? Is it your job? Is it who you date? Yeah. Uh, Is it your success? Right. What, what, what is identity? Cause I, I feel like Lakeith Stanfield's Cassius uh, throughout the film, is struggling with his own sense of self because he starts off trying to make money to pay the bills. And then at a certain point decides he wants to help his friends at the call center who want to go on strike to make more money. But you know, as the film progresses, he's presented with opportunities so that he doesn't have to worry about that as much. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think that it, it deals with, he has to put on the white voice. I, there's a, his coworker once he moves up in the, in the call center yeah. who says, only talk to me in your white voice. Right, you know, and it, it's just it's 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 very strange because then all of that his salesmanship and this this alter ego that he has developed for his job is a part of who he is as the film develops, and then that's a, a big tension later on in the film. So I think that's a really interesting idea that explores uh, again. Lakeith Stanfield did a great job exemplifying yeah. this struggle because at the end of the day, like if you can be successful, and make lots of money, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you and that's that? kind of what society has trained us to think. And, and, and I, uh, his character, uh, is, is there too, until he actually becomes really successful. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, how much do I believe in that other stuff? Is it, you know, what's more important the money or, you know, the things I used to believe in, or I do believe in. Mm-hmm. And all those things kind of, it's weird. Cause for, I mean, as a question, I mean, all those things for everyone else is just like, what's your identity? It, it is all those things, you know, it's, it's your, your, um, identity at work, your identity with, around your friends. Um, but for minorities, sometimes the prominent thing is of course, just that minority. And so for us, it's more so like emulating, you know, those other, those other facets of us. So as, so that, you know, what is so obvious to the, you know, the naked eye, isn't what you see as ass, you know? So that was a, an interesting thing that they had to kind of, you know, um, digress into, but yeah. 
Yeah, uh, again, lots of nuance there. Yeah. I think this film does a really great job at that. Now, the the movie, uh, man, it touches on so much, uh, so many different ideas. It almost could be perceived as too much. And I think it will be too much for a lot of folks. Uh, Laurent, did you think this movie was too much? But I mean, there's a lot of big ideas between uh, the working, the, the struggles of the working class, race, uh, race and politics, critiquing, you know, workers' rights marches and corporations. Like, there's a lot that's packed into this movie. Did you, did you think it was too much? Well, I think if you're thinking of it very as a as literal, then yes, I think. But if I think if since we did say obviously it's a very surrealistic take on all these issues, so it works in that context. I think once it once you realize just how far they're going to go with all of this, with the weirdness, with the, with the oddness of it, um, it, 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 it kind of just becomes a canvas, you know, kind of a very layered canvas about all these issues. Um, and I think, I think it works very effectively that way. I think if they had tried to play this as a straight drama and maybe just say, take out maybe the third act of weirdness, <laughs> then it probably would have felt very heavy handed. But I think as it exists now, it's just really provocative and, and thoughtful. So and inventive. So, yeah, no, I think that's a great point, and that's one of the ways I think the film uses satire as a as a as a real tool uh, to relay its points. It's similar to another movie you mentioned, Blind Spotted. We were, we were talking about it before we we hopped on the mics, and another movie that does uh, uses some non traditional techniques to deliver what could be heavy handed dialogue as not like it connects better. And I think you're right. Whenever you you make it satire, when you make it a little more surreal, you make it a little larger than life. Some of the things they're they're showing visually or the scenarios they're placing our character in that would probably never actually happen in a drama because they're in this movie. It works. It's kind of like if Terry Gilliam had directed like, I want to say boys in the hood because that's the typical, but and some insert, you know, popular urban genre here. Oh, that's a great point. This is a lot like a Terry Gilliam film. I didn't even consider that. It has a very, yeah. I mean, there's some horror elements to it. You know, obviously it's comedic, but it's also very dark too. I mean, so it's uncomfortable there, particularly towards the end. So um, the whole, it's almost like they're just, they were mincing out a little bit of dread, you know, throughout the whole time. And then at some point you're just, all the way in it. And now that by that point though, you're pretty well seduced. You can't really take your eyes off of it. Even if you're not enjoying it or uncomfortable, you can't, it's like a train wreck. You can't stop looking at it. So, and I think that's why at the end of it, we couldn't, we couldn't really articulate how we felt about it because there were a lot of ideas thrown at us. But, um, but as it kind of sits, you think this is kind of brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the nice thing about it. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure how well all these things work as I've been thinking about it, but I can tell you this, I admire it for being very ambitious. Yeah. I admire it for trying to express some really big ideas, very important and, and relevant ideas in a way differently than I think the other counterpart, other examples you mentioned, even get out and uh, even moonlight or yeah, blind spying all it's doing its own thing. Right. Uh, and I respect it for that. And I like it because quite frankly, the, Overall this year, there are definitely the standout films, but overall I feel like I'm watching the same movie quite a bit, and this feels so unique and fresh. And honestly, all the themes that are in the film are not new. They're not new things that haven't been explored in other movies, but they haven't been explored this way, and that's right. why that's why it feels fresh and, and, and interesting. Um, and so I think that they've found, a, again, a very unique way to, to basically talk about really concrete themes in abstract ways, and um, it cause a little bit more um, active viewership from the, you know, from the audience, but um, it, it makes for something really original. So, and it's definitely, there's no way you walk out of this theater without 
I mean, you might be angry, but maybe you'll be thinking about the film. I mean, there's no way you leave this film not thinking about it. It, it gives yeah. you something to take away with. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully it's productive thinking, not angry thinking. But, you know, I, I do think, you know, there's a lot to digest here. And I, I think ultimately how complex and kind of out of the box, its presentation of its ideas, I think everyone's going to walk away with something to think about uh, for the days and weeks after the theater. I know I've still been thinking about it. And we, it was two weeks ago, I think we saw it. Yeah. Well, so we'll, we'll go ahead and get to the really good juicy stuff and the spoilers. Uh, before we make a recommendation, Laurent, is there anything else you want to highlight about the film, uh, spoiler-free? I mean, between this film and blind spotting what kind of what's kind of interesting is that both of them you know are kind of talking about this kind of deep divide between white culture the dominant white culture and then minority culture but what's interesting in both of these films is what's kind of the uh what's kind of deepening that divide is is the green essentially money you know and and how that kind of is always the root of it you know always the root of the issue you know people living in poverty stricken areas who have, you know, are not subject to um, having all of the resources and all the, you know, the availabilities to them. So it's it's interesting how in both of these films, um, uh, race obviously is a component of it, but it's more used as fuel for the larger machine that is capitalism, you know. And so I think that in more more specifically here in this film, obviously because they are dealing with with corporations, and but um, but both films kind of touch on it in that way. So. I think it's just a really interesting way to kind of, you know, um, to see how these issues kind of continue to perpetuate because sometimes, you know, race is a component and obviously we can, we can cry racism every single time and it is definitely there, but there's also kind of a monetary incentive to keep doing these things because, you know, if you make workhorses out of these people, you know what I mean? Then this continues to happen. So, um, and so long as it's profitable, then, that's how capitalism works. You know, it doesn't care about individual lives, you know, and, um, and so that embrace just happens to be one of those things that kind of, you know, helps fuel all of that. So, well, and, uh, you know, the way that oftentimes, uh, capitalism is exploited to mm-hmm. keep people, uh, of, 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 of certain, color and certain groups, uh, or even gender kind of pigeonholed right. and below the line outside of the dominant white culture. You know, there, it is a power, there is a big power struggle. And I think the film touches on that, mm-hmm. uh, uh, for certain, but I, but I, I think, yeah, I, I agree. I really appreciate how it does show a very clear connection at the end of the day. I think it's more critical. It is being more critical of greed. Yeah. Uh, corporations and capitalism than it is about race. However, mm-hmm. We see directly how race affects it. Uh, race affects it's it, and how those and how those things affect race too. Yeah, uh, and it gets very specific um, yeah. down to the experiences. And, and what I've, I've one scene in particular we'll talk about in spoilers that I just was like, my jaw was on the floor. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I know I'm the white guy in the theater right now, but I'm uncomfortable. I see, you know, you're able to experience this, and it's it's yeah. Well, we'll talk right. about it. There's a lot. I think there's a, few, a handful of scenes like that. Right. So yeah, one thing I want to touch on too is uh, I you know I did at one point work in a call center, and you know it's not very often I see films ever portray call centers for more than like two seconds. They actually show call center life, and uh, spot on, spot yeah. on. I remember you said that, and it was interesting. Is I actually. I mean, I read that the that he actually worked in a call center before he mm. was. So that actually probably touches on why he understood that. The scene in particular when the woman is um, 
talking about her husband's dying of cancer yeah. or has died yeah. of cancer and you're supposed to stick to the script yes, as they yeah, say stick to the, the script film. but yeah you're supposed to ha- you know remove all emotions even though you know deep down that you i mean th- you know what you're doing is essentially ripping them off you know yes. so and yeah. it's interesting that um they touch on that and and you have to you know again with the code switching it's like not just the you know just code switching culturally but also you know on a humane level you know, like, this is my job. This is what I do. So I thought it touched on that, too, how that kind of becomes a part of it, the greed aspect of it. But, yeah. Well, yeah, and again, you're, you're looking at, because we see we see later how much the people who are higher up the food chain make, how much yeah. money, the, the, the ridiculous parties that they're, the money they're making. And then we see that after we've seen, hey, here's all these workers who are making pennies who are having to go on strike because... Mm-hmm. Everything's a selling point. Mm-hmm. Oh, your 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 husband has cancer. Well, you know what? We have something that can. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like exploiting those things in that yeah. way. So they touch on that. And that was hard. That was hard because I I definitely did have experiences where you get those calls like, oh, right. uh, well, this person just died, or you know, and yeah. but it's do I acknowledge it, this or? yeah. Do you just roll with it? Do you get dinged? Because yeah, it, it affects yeah. your scorecard. You yeah. know, and, yeah. and a lot of those uh, call centers like it doesn't. Sometimes the circumstances don't matter. They'll say they'll come back and say, hey, well, really, you could have done the script this way. But I'm like, yeah, but people yeah. people and uh again the script is more important than the humanity yeah that's a sidebar i appreciated that he it's a small detail that i personally appreciated because most films don't take the time to showcase what that cult what that workplace looks like what that culture looks like and there are quite a few people who still work in call centers a lot of it's being automated these days but there's mm-hmm. still a lot of people i mean we have call centers a lot of, a lot of them in oklahoma actually mm-hmm. um so it is a very real type of office that a lot of people still work in and most filmmakers i mean even places even films like office space aren't dealing with call centers they're dealing with more office fair style so it's a little different so i appreciate that uh i have to give a shout out to all the performances they were all really really exceptional um i mean lakeith obviously um who also was in get out had a good like kind of minor minor role in that was was really great in the lead here um and tessa thompson i'll never say anything bad about her she's always great um I found her, there's a scene where she is at an art exhibit that I found to be especially um, hard to watch. Yeah. Um, and we might talk a bit about that too. Uh, but she does, she plays an interesting role, which is quite a bit different than, you know, Annihilation or, or yeah. Westworld or, yeah. you know, other things we've seen her in this year. Yeah. Uh, uh, I also really think Army Hammer does a great job. Oh, yeah. He's, he is more charismatic than I've seen him in a while going yeah. for like a charismatic CEO type vaguely like an Elon Musk mm-hmm. type so, character a, a little bit there. Lauren, do you recommend this film? If so, how, how do you recommend people see this? This is a film you're going to have feelings about after you watch it. You'll, I mean, intensely one way or the other. So, um, I would say it probably would play, it'd play well at home just as much as the theater because there's nothing specifically, you know, um, there's nothing. There's nothing about it. Cinematically, it's well done, but it's not something that has to be seen in the big, you know, sound quality and thing like that. So it's something that's more thoughtful than anything else. So um, I would say, um, if it's your type of film, go see it. You know, if it, if you're into things, it, challenging yourself um, mentally when you see something, because you will, you you're not going to be able to sit here comfortably and just watch it. It's not an easy film. Then definitely go see it. But definitely, I'd say it, at the very least, rent it. Okay, yeah, I think I, I think I'd second that as well. I, I I really think this is a solid matinee if you're looking for something that's a little more outside of your normal summer film fair, 
It's not something that has to be seen in like some premium theater going experience. Although I, I do want to give it, I encourage you to give it money if you can, because I want more movies like this. Um, so I, you know, I recommend the matinee. I think it's great. I think you'll walk away with a lot of thoughts and feelings about things and, and, and ideas to chew on. And I think you're going to be shocked by what you see, no matter. And I, I, I just can't express because the movie just takes turns you're not expecting. Yeah. And uh, for for that, and I, I don't know how that that heel turn. I'm not sure if that works fully, but man, yeah. I love it because it's it gets so bonkers. It gets it, a reaction. <laughs> yeah. So I, and I do so far. I mean, if I'm looking at this year, I'd say it, it probably falls in my top ten of the year so far mm-hmm. somewhere. I don't haven't ranked it, but I know I, I feel strongly enough about this film that it's it's really unique. Yeah. And even though I think there might be some problems with that last act where it it it, it risks jumping shark uh, going off the rails going off the rails a little too much. I don't think it does, but it gets real close. Yeah. It's never boring. It's never it's never not interesting. Exactly. And that's that's the, the best part of it. For me, the almost going off rails is worth it because I saw something unlike yeah. anything I've seen, exactly. or at least unlike I've seen recently. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So those are our recommendations. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into a little bit of a spoiler-filled analysis. So uh, if you don't want to know, talk about all the weird, crazy stuff that happens Get in out. this movie. Get out. See what I did there. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm going to have to get me some new suits. Whatever I wear, no, I'm here to be clear. Well, Ron. Yes. Let's talk about it. Okay. So firstly, the, the scene I was referencing that was grossly the most uncomfortable to me was when he, when uh, like he goes to this party uh-huh. and they force him to rap. Oh, and yeah. I just like, firstly, it's, it, it was very evident to me. It, it took me about, about a minute or so at the party. Then I realized, Oh wait, he's the only person of color here. Him and his uh, boss. Yeah. Everyone else was white, which is a huge comparison mm-hmm. or a huge opposite to the call center where it's, everyone's a person of color. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Except, no, well, I mean, most, point. most, most yeah, everyone. Right. No, uh, no, I just, you just didn't realize. Um, that. Yeah, it, right. it was something I picked up on, like just drawing the differences. I was like, oh, subtle thing. The movie never, movie never stops and says, oh my gosh, I'm the only black guy here, right. or vice versa. There's never any of that. It's a very nice subtle you thing. You, you feel it. Oh, you feel it. And that scene where he gets up and he tries to rap and he's bombing it, and then all of a sudden he starts. Yeah, because he's. Incur- I mean, because Army Hammer is like, like, hey, you know, you want do a rap for us. And he's like, I actually don't do that, man. You know, it's like, no, but of course you do. Of course you do. You have to. You're, you're black. You're right? black. You, you know you, how to rap. You have to rap. Yeah, exactly. So, and he's like, no, I really don't. And then you know, obviously he's pressured and pressured and pressured to the point where you know they start. You know, club music starts playing, and he just starts saying, you know, uh, a racial slur, the N word, you know, over and over and over again, with really no no lyrics that's that is the word he's repeating over and over again with a beat you know and next thing you know everyone in the in the room that's not black starts you know saying the same word in a very you know um i don't know it's just it it it's a perfect example of like one of those situations where like you have make an assumption about somebody and you feel pressured to accommodate those people because they're you know they're they're essentially now your colleagues and also the reason why you have a job. So he's pressured to kind of put himself in a vulnerable place and not and do something that he that doesn't come naturally for him. You know, so I thought that was really a really powerful scene. But well, and I think it's just kind of hitting on how white culture is a appropriating and uh, celebrating aspects of black culture without actually understanding the, the cultural or compartmental, or compartmentalizing it yeah, as, though, and yeah. as though it's, it's, it's something that you can, you can, you know, wear or see, or like, it's like a tangible thing that, um, that we, we possess that it's not, it's it, as though people aren't just people that if you are black, you're certain, you're programmed with a certain set of settings, you know what I mean? That, 
that you can just whip out at any opportune moment and, and people don't work that way. But it's interesting how they paint that picture. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And that's just one of that's one of many ways the film, I think, does a great job at presenting race as a huge factor in this character's life and in the story without it actually being the point of the story right. which gets us to the weird stuff because that's the beginning of the weird stuff when, once they get to the party yeah, you can just hold the, that, that's no yeah exactly <laughs> that's normal weird stuff and then we we see him sit down okay so army hammer takes him to this room and they sit down and describe what his plan is and it's got a puppet that's narrating yes and yeah it gets real weird so basically he's gonna have they're going to hire all, they're going to have all their employees snort this cocaine that turns them into horse people. You heard that. Yes. Horse people. Horse people. That that is correct. (laughs) By snorting cocaine of some sort. Yeah. And, uh, I'm sure that's obviously a literal, I mean, a literal translation of like workhorses, but I mean, it's, it's there visually too. And the first time we lay eyes on one of these horse people who have taken this, who have snorted this substance, you know, it is jarring because I mean, they're fully nude, first of all. Um, and they still have their human voices, um, and they're able to speak through it. But it, it, the imagery is something just, just so shocking. so shocking and disturbing. Well, and the way they reveal it too, it basically is going to the bathroom and you hear the voice saying, help me, help me. And yeah. then he opens it up and it's horse person. You're like, Whoa, falls out onto the ground. And you're like, WTF like what did we just see what is going on like I actually thought he was dreaming I really yeah. thought he had he because had, he snorted the cocaine right before he went in there right and I thought well you watched the video at that point because I think because then he's like no you're gonna watch this video and it's gonna make sense it's gonna make sense he, of everything. he, he like took a bathroom break yeah. it got weird he got weird it, I can't remember how at what point there was a break like there was a break where he goes it. to the bathroom yeah. And he finds the horse person, comes back, and Army Hammer says, ah, you weren't supposed to see that yet. You're supposed to finish the video. It all makes sense. Right. While, while Army Hammer's flaunting a gun in his face, by the way. Right. So, yeah, definitely not by choice. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it just, at that point, that is, that is the point where you realize that we have gone all the way. We've thrown the kitchen sink out. This is where this film is going. It's not just going to be, you know, thought provoking on a cerebral level. It's also going to be, you know, disturbing to the eye. So it, the, um, the, it's it's yeah, it's super disturbing to the eye. It's it's it becomes more visceral instantly, and just something so darkly sinister about an evil corporation using its resources to poison their employees in order to get more to dehumanize them because at the end of the day it's all about productivity they don't really care about the Mm -hmm. human element there they just want them to 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 because the whole idea for them to to be turned to these horse people it's not just because it's weird and cool but it's also because they're saying you're going to be stronger you're not going to get as tired you're going to be able to get a lot more done you know in a day's work than you would if you were a human right And, and you get a horse dick and you get a that, horse that was actually a selling point in the says, movie. He and says you get that. a horse stick. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> that was the selling that point. Was, that was the perk. That's very sinister. And then the second layer of sinister, because that's a sinister point in general, because you're manipulating people into buying into something they're not, they don't understand the consequences of. And I think the idea was that we're going to flood the streets with it too. Like, mm-hmm. just, yeah. Anyway, twisted because I believe that could happen. I mean, yeah. without the horse people piece, you know, the idea yeah. of like. F- Wealthy group, wealthy groups flooding the streets with drugs in order to keep them fair. You know, and if it to works, the and the thing is about it is, it doesn't matter how many individual lives it affects. It's like if it works and it is more productive, then they they're gonna corporations will seize an opportunity to utilize. Oh, they'll that celebrate to, it. To Their stocks advantage. will go up, right? Yeah, exactly. So 
And what's interesting is simultaneously while all this is happening, there's all of these um, images of protest throughout the entire film. They're, they've been right. protesting this for the longest time because before we knew what Army Hammer and this corporation, Worry Free Incorporated, um, was doing, you know, behind the closed doors, you know, we... It, we like the audience as the audience has just been kind of fed, you know, the Kool-Aid, you know, like as though that this was a great thing that they were doing and that, Hey, to get to this space, it's good. Cause you're going to be lucrative. And, um, but then you get there and you realize it comes with a price as does anything with money and capitalism. And, uh, the second layer of, of, uh, sinister that I really find about this whole plan is, so you're doing that terrible thing, but he's already the army hammer and worry free are already thinking about the next thing. Oh, well, eventually, these people are going to figure out that they have been conned, and they're going to try to revolt. So we need to create some sort of Martin Luther King esque <laughs> leader who works, for, but works for us. So he's not only like foe leading them, looting them only in the ways that we would want them to. Yeah, it's very sinister. Yeah, it's very dark. It's very dark. Like, from people of power thinking like that's how far ahead they're thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. hey, we're going we're going to take these people's humanity away from them make them more productive so we can make more money off the things they make. Once they realize that they're getting the the short end of the stick, we're going to present to them a leader who's going to help else us still control them, even though they don't realize we're controlling them. And the thing about it that, that makes it dark is it's, it's, it's the cynicism because there's no, even like mobility comes with, you know, the sacrifice again of the soul, but then to not do it is to sit there and struggle your whole life. You know what I mean? On the, the bottom level there where he was originally, with everyone else just trying to make it make ends meet. So it's this kind of weird parallel, you know, to the the world we're living in right now, you know, and how, I mean, they say the economy is good, but I don't know for whom I think they're saying it. It's great that they're saying it, but the people I know, um, you know, it's not, it hasn't been great for them. The stock market's doing great. We'll put it that way. I don't know. I don't know if the economy is doing good. The the stock market's doing great though. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) But um, there's a, there's some parallels there, obviously, to right now. I don't know if that was intentional or if it's just kind of a, you know, one of those you, things. You know, I read he published this in a magazine back in 2014, I think, yeah. 2015. It's been a couple of years. Like it's it's a, it's something that's been published for a while, um, which I think goes to show that while this is this type of thing is definitely in the conversation now, it's been a problem for longer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's yet yeah, the spotlight's a little more on it and a little more everyone's talking about yeah. these things that have kind of come to the surface in the last couple of years. But I think it goes to show you even like say in the Obama era, like this was still a thing. This yeah. was still a problem that has only been amplified, I think, in the last couple of years. I agree, yeah. Uh, so testament to, again to Boots Riley's script for that. Yeah, uh, this is not the kind of uh, thought provoking work you would think would come out of that. I mean, I'm not, I guess I'm not as familiar with his work, but I mean, for a debut, a directorial debut, this is a very you know. Oh, this is crazy! Yeah, yeah. a directorial debut. There is so much confidence mm-hmm. in this film. Uh, all borderline overconfidence because it does. I mean, like when the horse people show up, you're just like, "Whoa, we just crossed over from satire into something much like, again sci-fi or something a little more surreal." Yeah, I would love to sit down and at least, I mean, either, either I interview him or at least hear him answer all of my questions. <laughs> so, yes. So, because um, yeah, it's it, it goes places that you know that you you cannot predict and. Um, while using issues that have, you know, been that are prevalent right now and and have always been. So it's kind of it's interesting how he freshened, you know, uh, an age old argument and gave us a new way to talk about it. So, 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so after the weird twist happens, I really thought that this movie was going the way of, because we see Lakeith Stanfield go and then blow the whistle on worry free. But then all of the things he does, at least upon my initial reading, I've had some time to reflect on it, but all the things that I saw uh, him doing actually rallied a lot of support from the protesters. So I thought that he had actually taken the deal, but we didn't see it on the screen mm-hmm. and he was inadvertently working for it because the idea of he was building up, a, it was kind of a, he, he yeah. built like a, a resistance on right. his side right. and, and was controlling the people. Yeah. And it didn't end up taking that way. And I don't, I, that would have been the, the ultimate cynical ending. Right. The ultimate cynical ending is that, oh, actually, Worry Free, he was on, ended up being on Worry Free's payroll. And the film doesn't do that. It shows that he actually does actually revolt, although the ending does, <laughs> doesn't make as much sense because we see him snort that Coke early in the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Army Hammer assures him, no, 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 what are you talking about? No, no, that, that's not, that was not the substance you saw in the video. You're good. I wouldn't do that to you. Right. Without right. you I knowing would, about it, what kind of person would, you think I am? Exactly. Yeah. But then at the end of the movie, he we see he's got the horse now and that's cut to credits and i don't really know what to make of that it's such a weird shocking ending i think it well well this the cycle just keeps going you know because obviously he did it against his will because if he was able to choose he probably would have said no so it, it makes it's a wonder if anyone that got up there decided they wanted to do that you know what i mean so um so it, it is it is a jarring ending. I don't know if it's happy or hopeful because there was there an antidote. I thought maybe there was an antidote. Did they say there was? Yeah, there was an antidote because there was going to be a way to turn him back right. after the it was like a five year contract or something like that, ten year right. contract. Right, right. Well, horse people, horse people. Not horse, every day that you see that. I know, and it's certainly not expect. I mean, I thought the puppet in the video was very strange, but then it <laughs> only got much much stranger. <laughs> well, Laurent, before we wrap up our spoiler discussion, here's anything else you would like to add about? Sorry to bother you. Let it bother you. See it and let it bother you. Yeah, I concur. Wrestle with the movie, and if it upsets you, I would challenge you to think about why it upsets you, and maybe yep. do a little bit more reading on some of the ideas and themes we've talked about today. Not everyone is inclined to, especially in today's culture, where whenever we feel like someone's stepping on our toes, we dig our heels in even more. But I would encourage people to at least kind of consider and read into the, yeah. you know, what it is. I don't know about you or Laurent. When something bothers me, I sit around them for days thinking about. Yeah, you want it to become it? intelligible to yourself, you know, because I think what it is is you might be just a little whiplash after you leave it, the theater. And so I think the only way to remedy that is to educate yourself on what that was, you know? So I think you're right. I think after you watch it, I was compelled to read reviews and hear, I need, oh, to, yeah. I need every piece of information I can get about this. Cause what are people saying about it? What does it all mean? And you know, um, why did we go here? <laughs> yeah. Let the movie bother you wrestle with it a little bit. And, uh, hopefully we'll be still be talking about why it bothers us <laughs> come <laughs> right. December uh, next year or even March, maybe who knows. All right. Well, everyone, I do want to remind you, this is a podcast for the cinematropolis.com. You can find uh, more of our work, uh, on our social media channels at the cinematrop on Twitter and Instagram or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis. Uh, LeBron Chapman, where can people find you online? You can find me on Facebook, under my name, Leron Chapman, or you can follow my film at uh, facebook.com slash youpeoplemovie. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram under the film's name as well. And you people, great companion piece. No, with, yeah. Sorry to bother you. Yeah. Just saying. Topical just saying. things going on with race in the world right now. <laughs> so if you haven't seen 
you people, I highly recommend you check out the social media channels. That way you can find out where it's, it's, where it's playing next. next. You can always find me on Twitter, tweeting about all sorts of things, uh, films, television, pop culture, uh, the death of movie pass uh, at <laughs> C Masters Talk. That's letter C Masters Talk. Rest in peace, movie pass. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review and a rating to help us get discovered by more listeners. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the show and share our post on social media. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan, and the program was hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. Silver Screen Soliloquies was co-hosted by Laron Chapman. Soundtrack was hosted by Alexander Bohannon with selections from the 1968 Planet of the Apes, Donnie Darko, and Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. We'll see you all again next month when we take a look at films that examine the ideas of new and fresh beginnings.